your Bibles tonight, I want you to open up to the Gospel of John. We're actually going to be taking a break for a couple of weeks um, from our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount because um, this week we're going to be looking at what is celebrated as Palm Sunday usually this weekend. Um, and next week, of course, is Easter. So the next couple of weeks we're going to be focusing on that. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 12, verses 9 through 19 here. And we'll read that here in just a few moments. Um, so, you know, when it comes to royal families... Um, we in America, um, we're not used to having kings, right? We're not used to having kings and queens or royals come rolling through our cities. But for many countries still around the world today, um, they still function under a monarchy, and this is something that they're more used to. And when um, royalty comes rolling through a city, there are parades and people lining the streets, all kind of kind of pomp and circumstance, and people waving their country's flags and, and cheering and so on. Um, I, I was listening to a radio here, radio host here just a few weeks ago who was from Great Britain or England, and they were, um, they were asking him, like, is, is, the, is the monarchy still like a really big deal in England? I mean, like, do people even care? Or is it kind of outdated? And he's just like, no. He said, there's just something special about, about it when, when the queen, you know, when Queen Elizabeth and her whole entourage kind of comes through town, and I, don't, I think it'd be kind of cool to see someday, to be able to go over to one of those countries and see that big parade with a king or queen coming through town, but uh, anyways, it's, it's not something we're used to, but have you ever considered, what would it be like if, if Jesus came rolling through town? Like if, if Jesus was going to come to, say, Chicago, right, and then he was going to come into town, what do you think um, that would be like? What kind of reception do you think that he would get? Do you think people would line the street shouting his name? Would he be received well, or do you think that he'd receive some opposition? Um, I don't know. My guess is is he would probably receive all those things, uh, just like he did in Jerusalem, because um, he actually did go through a city. He actually was coming into the town of Jerusalem a couple thousand years ago, um, riding in on a donkey, paraded in as king. Um, that's kind of what we're going to be focusing on here this evening. Again, as we call this is what's kind of known as Palm Sunday, or rather um, what's really known in Scripture as the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem as king. So let's go ahead and read our text for today, and then we'll pray and ask God's blessing upon it. So starting in John chapter 12 in verse 9, it says this, when all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. And then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too, for it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. The next day, the news that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and, and went down to meet him. And they shouted, praise God, which is really translated Hosanna. Blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. In verse 14, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy, but after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what, he had, um, what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Then in verse 17, it says that many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. And then the Pharisees said to each other, there is nothing we can do. Look, everyone of the whole world has gone after him. 
they said. Let's go ahead and pray and ask God's blessing upon our time. Father God, we thank you so much for just first of all who you are, a God that is holy and righteous and good, a God that is just, a God that loves us, that loved us so much that you made a way through your son that we could be called yours, your children. And, and Father, we just praise you for, just for, for who you are and the salvation that we've received in Christ. And, and we thank you for your word. Um, this Bible, this book we hold in our hands that, um, that, that is your word to us. God, the instruction manual for our lives, God, is, is in our hands. God, what, what you want from us and, and how you desire us to, to live and to think, God, is in this book. And, and God, we, we, we know tonight that, uh, that Satan would like nothing more than for us to be distracted, um, to be thinking about what's going on later on or tomorrow or whatever. But Father, I just pray that you would just give us the grace to be able to focus just for these next moments completely upon you and what your word says here. I pray that you would just remove any distractions from this place, Lord, and we um, we humble ourselves, God, in your presence today and just ask that you would speak. Lord, just use my mouth as your voice, your, your voice to your people. And, and Lord God, I just pray that you'd be glorified um, in all of it. And we just love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So if you can kind of get the picture, uh, Jesus, by this time that this was written, um, he had, this is really at the very end of his ministry. So he had been really um, um, a big focal point on the scene, right? His ministry had been going on for about three years now. And during this time, I mean, he did some incredible, incredible things. So I, think it's, I think it's actually the book of John that said that there's not enough books in the world to document all the things that he did. We just see a, just a snapshot of the incredible things that Jesus did in just those three years that he was here on earth. But some of the things he did was he, he taught people. I'm just incredible truths. Um, as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, you know, he was teaching people really what God's Word meant, not really what they had been taught, right? Um, he, he challenged the religious authorities of the day who had, in so many ways, distorted God's Word. He had done incredible miracles from healing the sick and, and the blind, the crippled, the lame, all these things, right? I mean, he, got, he had just done some incredible, incredible things. He, he cast out demons from people, people who were possessed with demons and had just had lost control of their entire lives, and he would just speak the word, and, and demons would, would flee. Uh, calm storms by just the word of his mouth. He just says, stop, you know, and, and they stop, which would have been pretty awesome to see. Um, and, and to say the least, at this point in Jesus' life, he had affected many, many, many people throughout those three years. And so you could say that by this time in his ministry, Jesus was probably known by the vast majority of people in Israel. Even if they hadn't met him or encountered him, more than likely his name at least was, was known throughout the people. And to top all the miracles off, just a short time before he came into Jerusalem, what we just read here, um, he did probably his most incredible miracle to that point, which was raise a man named Lazarus from the dead, which we kind of sort of read about here in our text. Um, this man named Lazarus actually was one of Jesus' close friends um, while he was on earth. Um, he, he was the brother to Mary and Martha, who you read about in the gospel sometimes. And, and, and anyways, he had died, and he had been in the grave for four days. And so uh, he, he comes to this tomb, and they're like, well, what are you going to do about it now? I mean, he's probably already, he probably stinks. You know, he's probably decomposing. It's been four days, and he's like, I got this. And he just says, Lazarus, come forth. And, and the next thing we, we, we read about it is Lazarus walking out in his grave clothes completely alive, which is just a cool picture um, in so many ways, you know, um, it's just the idea of the dead being raised to life, the spiritual picture, and, you know, to just take those grave clothes off, I mean, you don't need them anymore, you know, and, and when we come to Jesus, our, our old life is supposed to be gone, we get this new life, and just what a beautiful, beautiful picture, but anyways, even before this point, 
There was definitely a, a growing murmur, if you will, that, that this Jesus could be the long-awaited Messiah that the people had heard about all their lives. Um, that they had read about in the, the prophets. And uh, when I say prophets, it's you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Ezekiel, and all those ones kind of at the end of the Old Testament. Now, the Messiah, or the Christ, the Messiah is kind of a Jewish word, um, or the Christ is kind of the Greek idea, right? So when you say Jesus Christ, it's really Jesus the Christ, or the Messiah is kind of the same kind of a parallel term there. But, but anyways, the Messiah is who the Jews largely believed at the time was going to come and save them. Them from their oppressors. Uh, they hadn't been a sovereign nation at this point for almost 500 years, um, ever since they had been taken over, um, and, and some of them even longer than that, the northern kingdom of Israel. But anyways, whether it was the, the, the Babylonians or the Greeks or the Persians or, or now the Romans, they looked forward to the day that this Messiah would come because in their mind, they believed that he was going to rescue them from their oppressor and they would, again, be kind of the, the, the top dog on the world scene um, with him as their leader. Now, there's good reason that they believe this, right? Because in the Old Testament prophets, there's a, there's a lot that alludes to this about the Messiah's eventual rule over the nations, that he would reign supreme from his throne in Jerusalem, right? They just miss the parts about everything else, that he's going to be the suffering servant that would come and would die and, and all these different things, right? But, but, this, but this prophecy about Jesus, about him coming to return, to, him, to coming to reign, to, to rule the nations, to, to sit on his throne in Jerusalem, that's very much still something that we look forward to still today as his people. I can tell you that I long for the day that we see Jesus and he comes and he finally sets things right. And so this was the idea that these people, many of them, even before Lazarus, had been thinking that could this Jesus be it, right? Um, now, because, you know, during um, the three years of Jesus' ministry, many became, became to, to believe this, and even on one occasion, um, you can read about in John chapter 6, they, they actually were going to take him and force him to be their king. And this came after he, he had fed, like, just like miraculously, a few fish, a couple, piece, a couple uh, loaves of bread. He fed, like, thousands of people, and these people saw this sign, and they're like, he has to be the Messiah. They were going to take him by force. It says in John 6 and 14 and, and 15, but Jesus recognized this, and he stopped it from happening because he knew that that wasn't his time yet, right? However, if we get back to the timeline of our, of our text here, now was the time. See, now was the time that, that Jesus, um, he, he knew that it was finally time for, for who he truly was to be revealed to the people, for the fact that he truly was the Messiah to be revealed to the world. Again, up to this point, although everyone knew Jesus, he never really allowed himself to be seen in that way, but, but he knew now the time had arrived. Why? Because in just a few short days after this, what we'll talk about next week, he was crucified. Uh, he did what he came to do, which was to go to a cross and to pay for, for your sins and mine, the sins of the world, that we could be saved and restored in our relationship with the Lord. And so in our text today, again, is at the very end of Jesus' ministry, um, sometime shortly before this, we don't know exactly, the timeline's a little bit vague as far as how many days it was that um, Lazarus had been healed or raised from the dead, really, um, before this. But what we do know is that this happened very shortly before, because in verses 8 and 9, it says that Jesus was in a town called Bethany, which was about two miles kind of directly east of Jerusalem, up on the, the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And some of you that have been to Jerusalem, you probably, probably have seen it, haven't you? 
you. You know, and uh, anyways, and so this is kind of where Jesus was at. He was at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and said people from all over flocked to this town because they wanted to see if this was true, um, because you look at verse 9, when all the people heard, they didn't see it, um, and they, they arrived and they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man who had raised from the dead. Now, the next day, if you jump down to verse 12, it says some people heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and it didn't take long for the news to spread throughout the city. And it says there in verse 12 that, that large crowds came to greet him. And specifically, if you look down to verse 12, it says that uh, it, it was large crowds due to the Passover. Now, the Passover was essentially this. During the designated time of the year, it had to do with um, kind of the, the, the new moon and everything else. There's so many weeks from that, right? And so that's kind of, if you ever wonder why we um, celebrate Easter on different days every year, it has, it has to do with the, the, the full moon before a certain whatever, then there's so many weeks after that, and, and so it, it varies from the end of March to the sometime in the middle of, of April. But anyway, at the designated time of the year, they would come together, and they would have this Passover celebration. And what this was, it was really a commemoration um, to, to remember what God had did for Israel when he helped them escape from the land of Egypt. If you remember back in the book of, um, at the end of Genesis, the beginning of Exodus, there they, they ended up in Egypt, ended up becoming slaves there, and the Lord led them out through there, and that whole story of the... Uh, um, remember when he was there, the, the, the angel of death was going to come in. He said, you need to find a lamb, slaughter it, put the blood over the doorposts, and the, the angel of death's going to pass over you. And so that's kind of the idea of the Passover. And this was a part of the Mosaic Law that he said, this is something you're going to celebrate every year, this Passover feast. And so everybody from all around Israel had come in, and scholars believe that there was probably somewhere in the range of two million people that were in Jerusalem at this particular time. Now, we don't know exactly how many of them were out on the road greeting Jesus, but what we do know, what seems to be um, the fact from, from the accounts that, um, that we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because this story is actually in all the Gospels, um, th- this, this prayed for Jesus, if you will, seems that it started in Bethany and it ended in Jerusalem. And so uh, on the way there, you, there's this picture of, of Jesus hopping on this donkey, as we see in, in verse 14, and all the people are th- throwing their clothes, it doesn't say here, but some of the other ones, it talks about how they threw their, their garments and their cloaks down the road in front of him, and they took palm branches and laid it down in front of him in this picture of them waving the palms, really just showing their, their respect and admiration and celebrating who he was. And so if, if it truly was from Bethany all the way to Jerusalem, there had to have been a lot of people that were lining the streets. Question is, why would he ride a donkey? Like of all the animals in the world that that the Son of God could have chosen to ride it on Jerusalem and be paraded in as king. Why a donkey? Why not like a, like a mighty stallion, you know? Or, or maybe take a, uh, take a lesson from Aladdin's playbook, you know, and have an elephants and an entourage, you know? I mean, that type of thing. Why not something like that? For a couple reasons. One, culturally, um, this, this picture, especially in, in Israel, and we'll see why here in a moment because of an Old Testament prophecy, it, it, was, it, it was a picture of humility and peace. Because of 
and, and then really the big reason he did this was to fulfill prophecy, as you can kind of see down there in verse 16. They didn't understand this until afterwards. But in Zechariah chapter 9, and verse 9, which is an Old Testament prophet, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly or humble and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so this was a prophecy that was, that was given hundreds of years before this, and the people should have recognized, and many of them probably did, that this was a sign of the Messiah because their king, this trusted Messiah, this one, was going to come into town riding on this donkey. And so it was just really this a symbol of peace, which is interesting because that's exactly what he came to bring, which was very, very much peace. Now, if you can get the scene, Jesus riding along with his um, donkey, people's clothes are down, the palm branches are down. Now, some in the crowd here, in verse 17 says, were the ones that had actually seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They didn't just hear about it, they were there as eyewitnesses, and it seemed that they were kind of going through the crowds, being like, do you know what he just did? I mean, that man was dead for four days. He walked out of the grave. So it was great. I mean, they're going around telling all these people, stirring everybody up. And as he was coming, it says that they were all shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which, you know, it's translated here, praise God. And it literally means save now is kind of the idea. And so they're shouting this all the way down the road, but also they're shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is also very specific because it's also a messianic quote, like a quote about like an Old Testament prophet that they said about the Messiah that was to come. And it's from Psalm chapter 118, verses 25 and 26, that says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send your prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. That's kind of what that was all about. But then they went on, and they said, Hail to the king of Israel. Literally, they were saying, hail the son of David, and some of the old translations say that, and this is so key because they're not, they weren't just acknowledging the fact that he was royalty, but they were saying that, that you are the true and rightful king of all Israel, which was just pretty cool. Now, another thing they said, which isn't in this version, but it's in, in one of the other, in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, one of the things they also said was, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, and it said, they said, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven, which is so interesting because that's exactly what Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to accomplish, to bring peace between heaven and earth, between a holy God and sinful people. And through his death on the cross, that's exactly what he did. He, he made peace possible, peace between us and the Lord, which is kind of interesting that it says that. Anyways, by, by them saying this, this was absolutely clear. The people had, had publicly recognized him as the true Messiah. These people were saying that we believe, Jesus, you are the Messiah spoken of, that, we have, that we've been hearing about our entire lives, spoken of, and all the, and all the prophets there. Now, this had to have been something to see, I mean, especially for his disciples. And, and you know, I, mean, I just try to imagine sometimes what it would be like to be able to, to, be able to go back and, in time and to see an event like this. I mean, just imagine if you were in the disciples' shoes, the, the sense of wonder that they probably had in that moment. I mean, because they, they believed he was the Messiah too, right? And you think maybe they, they asked themselves, like, man, is, is it finally time for him to take his throne? 
I mean, a couple of the disciples, remember the mother came, Zebedee's son, the mother of Zebedee's sons came and said, hey, when you get in your kingdom, can one of my sons sit in your right and one sit on your left? And, and, and in her mind, she was talking about his earthly reign because she thought he was the Messiah too. They thought literally that Jesus was going to come and take over the Romans and Jerusalem was going to be the, the kings of the world and, and they were going to get to reign with him. And so in their minds, they're thinking, man, it's, it's finally time. And maybe they were talking back and forth to one another going, what position do you think we're going to get? Do you think they will be made a governor? I don't know. You know, I mean, I have no idea what's going on through their minds, but what we do know is they did not get whatsoever that, that he had come to die. Again, they didn't understand that at this point. Anyways, verse 16 says, like I said, whatever they were thinking, obviously they didn't get it because it says here that they didn't understand until after um, all these events had taken place. But, you know, like I said, have you ever wished that you could, like, hop in a time capsule and, and go back in time and try to witness something like this? I mean, wouldn't it be cool to be, to be a part of the crowd? I mean, how awesome would it see, be, to, be to, to see Jesus paraded into Jerusalem or, or to be able to see him perform miracles or to be at the grave when he called Lazarus out? I mean, how amazing would that be to have seen those things? But what amazes me about this story really isn't so much the, the story itself, but what came after it that amazes me. Like, these people had God walking among them. Jesus, the Son of God, but he's God the Son, right? I mean, he's part of the, the Holy Trinity. He's God. John 1.1 1, 1 speaks of him as God, Right? I mean, Israel had experienced the presence of God in the temple, you know, when, when God's presence would show up, and it wasn't his physical body, it was just his entity, if you will, that was there, and, and only the priest could even go near him. They, they had heard the voice of God on Mount Sinai, they heard the voice of God thunder, but, but nobody had seen God. And literally, God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, was rolling into their towns. They got to wave palm branches over the Son of God. They praised his name as he rode into a city on a donkey. And they completely missed it. I mean, what more proof would they have needed that this truly was the one that the Old Testament prophets spoke of? I mean, how many miracles would they have to see before it was proven that this truly was the one. Well, it really wasn't about the proof. Really, it was about their perception of what the Messiah was. Because in their mind, the Messiah was just a man that was going to come and defeat somebody. He was going to be a mighty general, defeat, the, defeat their oppressors, and set himself up as king, and they were going to rule, right? What they missed was that he was going to be God the flesh. Because some of the Old Testament prophets talked about him, we talked about this at Christmas time, that, that he would be Emmanuel, that he would be God with us, the very Son of God himself coming, and they completely missed the fact that he wasn't just a man, but that he was God as well. And what amazes me is that they, they had him in their presence, walking into their city, and yet within just a few days... All these multitudes, thousands upon thousands of people that were witnesses to see all these things abandon him completely. Most of his closest companions left him. 
Most of the rest, instead of shouting Hosanna to the king, were instead shouting crucify him as he was being tried in a Roman court. Instead of shouting his praises, they were hurling insults and and spitting at him. In in Luke's account, as, as Jesus was on the way from Bethany to Jerusalem, as he approached the city, he said he began to weep. And one of the things he said is, is he was talking about the eventual destruction that was going to come a few years after this to the city of Jerusalem, but he says it was because God visited you and you didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize him for who he was. And see, my big question is, is like, what changed? Like, and, and well, how did they go from, from praising his name, calling him their Messiah, calling him their king, to the point that just a few days later, this was on Sunday, right? The Palm Sunday. And by Thursday, he was arrested. Friday, all these people, at least the vast majority of them, had him crucified. Why? What changed? What I want to do in our time we have left is just just take a, a peek, just for, uh, and we have to go take some from, from all four Gospels, but I want to look at the response this week, this, this whole Passion Week, right, the, uh, Palm Sunday on, the response of just different people that we see. For instance, the, the religious leaders of the day, the, the priests, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, that, that type of thing, right? Now, I, I know these people oftentimes get kind of a bad rap, and they weren't all bad. I mean, Nicodemus was a good one. In fact, Nicodemus was one of the ones who took Jesus' body after he was crucified and, and took care of him, you know. But, but even Jesus him, himself described these people as sons of Satan, as very self-righteous people whose hearts were far from God. And the evidence is so clear in our, in our, in our text today that this was true. Look, look at verses 10 and 11. He says, after the, Jesus arrived, people had heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead. Verse 10 says, Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus. I mean, this guy had just been raised from the dead, and now they wanted to murder him. Why? Because the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. I mean, one would think if somebody was raised from the dead that they'd want to go see it for themselves, and one would think even a, a hard-headed person could be convinced that if somebody came back from the grave to life that there was something special about the guy that did it. But no, not these guys. They wanted him dead. And of all the people, I mean, these were the... Let me tell you something. They, they knew the Old Testament. They, they memorized huge, huge portions of it, entire books. They knew it in and inward and outward. They knew it. If anybody should have known that Jesus was the Messiah, he filled every prophecy from his birth on. They should have known it. And yet, these were the ones, just a few days after he was paraded into the city, riled up the entire city to have Jesus killed. These were the ones that paid Judas, one of his disciples, to betray him. These were the men who had Jesus arrested. They had the Son of God and their Messiah in their presence, and instead of praising him, they accused him of blasphemy and then smacked him in the face and spit on him. These were the men who took him in chains to Pilate to have him crucified as a vile criminal, and you know the only charge he had against him? 
was the fact that he told the truth. When they asked him, are you truly the one? Are you the son of God? And he said, it is as you say. And that's why he was crucified. In fact, above his cross, the only charge that he had for him, and on the Roman cross, they would put a piece of paper with the charge of why they were being crucified. And his said what? King of the Jews. Crucified because he told the truth. These were the men who mocked him while he was in agony, dying on the cross for their sins. <laughs> These were the men, even after Jesus rose from the dead again, after Jesus himself rose from the dead, what did these men do? Oh, they didn't believe. They covered it up. They paid people off to tell a lie. And what's so devastating about that is it's, it's, we still see the effects to this day of their decision. Because these religious leaders of Jesus' day, because of what they did, still to this day, the vast majority of the Jews believe Jesus is false news. They believe Jesus is a, was a fraud to this very day. I mean, not all of them. There's some Jews that are saved, but my, again, my question is how could they have missed it? And the only answer is pride. They, Jesus was stealing their thunder. They had control of the people. They had positions of prominence. And they despised him because he stole the show. And they hated him for it. In fact, if you look back in John chapter 11, listen to what it says here in verse 45 through 47, and then verse 53. It says, Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus and when they saw this happen. Speaking of Lazarus, it says, But, but some of the Pharisees, um, the Pharisees, but some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. It says in verse 47, and Then the leading priests and the Pharisees called the high council together and asked, What are we going to do? This man certainly performs miracles and miraculous signs. They saw it. They knew it, right? And it says, if, if we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone's going to believe in him. Look what it says in verse 53. And it says, So from this time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. I mean, they, they saw his miracles. They knew what he was doing. They knew this wasn't a joke. And yet these people wanted him dead. And the only reason that we can, we can know of is because they were absolutely jealous. And in verse 19, it talks about like, the whole world's gone after him. What about us? They were afraid they were going to lose their prominence. And so they completely did an evil thing. Wanted to murder Lazarus and Jesus too. And as we know, they accomplished it, right? Another, another, another group of people that's interesting to think about are the people who heard about Jesus' miracles. In verses 9 through 12, there were a number of people who flocked to Jesus simply because they heard about him. Because of verse 18, the people who saw Lazarus being raised from dead went on, and went on around them and told him. And, and these people, the, the truth was they really didn't have any true allegiance to him. They were just kind of part of the crowd. More than likely, they were just there in hopes that he would do something cool in front of them. And this wouldn't have been the first time, back in the Gospel of, in, in the book of John in chapter 6, people wanted more miracles, and, and people wanted, and the only reason they were following him, and Jesus knew it because he said it, he's like, the, all, all you want is more miracles. They didn't want him. They just wanted what he could give them. So they never truly had faith that he, he was who he said he was. And, and even the people who saw him do the miracles... They really didn't believe in him. In fact, in, in, in John chapter 12, verse 37, it says, despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, it says most of the people still did not believe in him. 
and this, this huge crowd, as, as we said, and you can read about this in John 19, this huge crowd was standing in Pilate's court as Jesus was being tried after he had been beaten and flogged and, and he was standing there in Pilate's court and, and he's like, I find this man innocent. What do you want me to do with him? And they all together, it says, shouted, crucify him. Why would they do that? What, what changed? And the only thing we can see is that he didn't live up their expectations. They really thought he was going to come and take over the Romans and when that didn't happen, they're like, Psh. He was a fake. They didn't want him. But worse than that, what about the disciples? The ones that had walked with Jesus for, for three years. They abandoned him too. Not all of them, but, but the vast majority of them abandoned him. In his greatest moment of need, Judas betrayed him for 30 silver coins. Peter, one of his closest companions, denied three times that he even knew Jesus. Most of the rest scattered in their attempt to save their own necks. See, they loved being a part of Jesus' clan when he was a celebrity, but now when the going got tough, they took off running. Why? Fear, sure. I mean, they really believed, but I think they even doubted. Maybe we were wrong. However, not everybody did. In, 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 one, in, in John chapter 19, listen to what verses 25 through 27 says, because there were some people that stood by him all the way to the end. It says, standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister Mary and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, speaking of John the Apostle, right? John the, John the disciple. He said, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, the disciple took her into his home. This was John. Not all of them abandoned him. His mother was there. His, one of the female disciples he had was there, Mary Magdalene. And even John stayed there by his side all the way to the end. Even at the peril of their own lives, they counted the cost and still remained faithful to the Lord. And as you know, as I think about all these responses, I think we can learn a lot from them. Especially the last one. You know, to give some of these people a break, I mean, as we've talked about today, they, they didn't have the whole story like we did. I mean, to be fair, right? Like the disciples, to be fair, didn't have the whole story. Most of them believed Jesus was a prophet or a teacher, even the Messiah of some sort, but they did not understand that he was God in the flesh. They did not grasp that for them to receive truly the greatest gift they would ever receive, Jesus had to go to the cross because it was the only way. The whole purpose for the cross was to pay for their sins so they could actually go to heaven, right? I mean, and, and they didn't grasp this at the time, not until afterwards. I mean, if they knew the rest of the story that we're going to talk about next week, if they, if they knew that three days later he was going to rise from the dead, and if they knew they were going to receive the Holy Spirit, and if they knew the, that the gospel was going to spread like a wildfire like it did, my guess is, is it would have been a far different story. But again, they didn't know that. But here's the thing, we, we do know the whole story. The thing is, is that we have the completed Bible. We can see exactly why Jesus had to die, why he did what he did. We can see with our own eyes that he rose from the dead, that he's alive in heaven today. We see that, we know that today. And yet, there are still people, so many, 
even knowing all of these things, have the exact same responses as the people did that week after he was paraded as king. There are so many reasons people deny Jesus. Some just because they have pagan beliefs. I mean, I didn't talk about the Romans, but they, had, they, they worship pagan gods. And so many people today, they, they have a just completely different belief system. They, they worship a, a Buddha. They worship some other foreign entity, right? That's just a fake false god. And, and people reject Jesus for that. But, but many people refuse Jesus just simply because they, like the Pharisees, and all, they, they see him as a threat to their life. They, they don't like the idea of some guy they can't see having control and, and rule over them, and, and I don't want nothing like that. I, I like my life the way it is. I like to be able to do the things that I want to do, and I'm certainly not going to submit to some person that I can't even see. Many people refuse Jesus simply out of skepticism. Like these people in the streets, when Jesus didn't... Uh, meet the, the, their standards of what they thought he was. They, they turned away from him. And so many people today, they, they, they look at Jesus and like, well, we can't see him. We can't hear him. We can't touch him. He's just some invisible entity in the sky and we're supposed to believe that he's real and, and supposed to surrender our lives to him and that something that happened on the cross 2,000 years ago was supposed to affect me. Yeah, I don't think so. Look at it as craziness. And one of those verses of Scripture says the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who believe it's the power of God, right? It's just a, it's just a change. And, you know, many of the people in Jesus' day, like I said, were expecting him to take out the Romans, but, but when, when, when he didn't, when he was beaten in front of them, when he was taken and put on a cross and didn't do anything about it, they're just like, yeah, he can't be it. You know how many people today refuse to follow Jesus because he didn't meet their expectations? Like, well, if he's real, why does he allow all the evil in the world? If, if he's real, why did he allow this really, really bad thing to happen to me? So people have some tragedy in their life, which is awful, and yet instead of driving them to Jesus, they look at Jesus as the enemy, and they refuse to serve him because if he was a good God, he never would have allowed this to happen to me. And what they don't realize is that instead of turning away from him, if they would just turn to him in faith, that they could experience the, the greatest miracle of all, which is them being saved of their sin and being made a child of God. But I love the last response of John. And, and I love the response of, of Mary Magdalene. That at the risk of their own lives, they said it didn't matter. We're going to stay by our Savior's side all the way to the end. And as we think about the events from the triumphal entry of Jesus on Palm Sunday throughout that whole week, I, I'd like to think that we'd have responded differently than they did, right? But the truth is, that although we may have been in the crowd, more than likely if even Peter and most of the other disciples scattered you can bet we probably would have too, right? But as I said today, we have the rest of the story. We know the full gospel. We know the disciples came back to him. So what should our response be? Our response should be that of John. For all that Jesus has done for us, if we truly believe that he is who he says he is, if we truly believe that he is the Son of God who came to die for our sins, who was buried and three days later rose again, 
If we believe that, if we believe that's our salvation that's going to get us a ticket to heaven and eternity with him forever, for all that he has done, the least we can do is stay by his side all the way to the end. No matter what it costs us, no matter what it takes, no matter what peril it puts us in in our lives, he is worthy of us staying by his side all the way to the end. And you know what's amazing? Is that this isn't the last scene we see of Jesus coming in triumph. And in fact, I'm going to close with this, but listen to this picture that Revelation chapter 19 gives. Now the triumphal entry of Jesus coming in on a donkey bringing peace between us and God. But there is coming a day that Jesus is going to come in a whole different way. It says in Revelation 19 verses 11 through 13 this, I saw the heaven open. This was the Apostle John that wrote this. I saw heaven open and behold, he says, a white horse. Why a white horse? Because in Roman times, when a, when a conquering hero, a conquering general who won some major battle, they would be paraded into Rome in front of all the people as a conquering general, they would ride a white horse, a white stallion. And so we see this picture, and it's very specific culturally to the time that they would see him. He's coming as a conquering king. The first time he came as, came as what? A lamb to the slaughter. As a humble servant going to give his life. But this time, he's coming as a conquering king. And it says, And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, it says, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one except himself knew. And it says, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And down in verse 16, it says, On his robe and on his thigh was written, The King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you know the amazing thing is, those of us that know him now, those of us that have served him, are staying faithful to him, in verse 14 of Revelation 19, listen to what it says, and the armies in heaven, clothed in in fine linen, white and clean, followed him also on white horses. Guess who's also coming as conquering royalty? If you know Jesus, that's you, and that's me. We're going to get to experience firsthand the next time Jesus rides in. And this time he's going to take his throne and he will reign forever and ever and ever. So until that day, friends, let's follow the example of John. Let's follow the example of Mary Magdalene and let's stay faithful with him all the way to the end because in the end there is reward. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you, God, for just the hope that is in you, Lord, and uh, just the fact, God, that you are incredible. Um, You are loving, you are caring, you are merciful, you are gracious, you are understanding. God, even in our weaknesses and our many flaws, Father, you never abandon us, you never reject us. And God, I praise you for that truth. I praise you so much for the fact that we can know you through Christ and that that, that our sins are forgiven in him, that we are made your children, Father, in him, and that we have a hope, um, a, a sure hope, of eternity with you forever. And God, I just praise you for those things. God, so just God, as we think about this message, God, give us the faith to stand strong. Give us the faith not to, not to walk away from you in fear, not to run to save our own necks, but God, when the towing gets tough, God, let us stick to your side. Let us, let us hold on to the faith no matter what it costs us because God, you are worth it. You are worth it. And we know there's going to be a day of reward for us to do that, Lord God. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.